Are you ready? Let's jump into the scriptures. Just a, a question to preface the time. How many of you want to have a secure knowing in that you are a blessed person? You want to be blessed and know that you, that you are. I think that uh, is probably everybody. The unique thing in our society, in our culture, and, and just in this time and moment in history, um, especially as Americans, you know, we have such spectrums. There's uh, polarities in our society, whether it's ethnically, uh, religiously, socioeconomically. There's such a diversity and so many different ways that you could measure blessing. Um, and I think as much as we all want that, what's even more pressing is what does it actually mean to be blessed? And depending on where I fit on these dis different spectrums and what culture and society says and what different religions say and what different people say and podcasters and influencers and, you know, what, is it, what does it mean to be blessed? And, and, and this morning as we open the scriptures, that's what we're really going to, to look at is what is the standard that Jesus has set for blessing and who are the blessed ones? And, and I think by the time we get to the end of this, you'll leave extremely hopeful uh, you'll leave extremely blessed, and I think you'll have uh, a new lens on what good news actually is. So Matthew chapter 5 is the text we're in this morning, Matthew 5, verses 1 through 11. This is in a micro way, the Beatitudes, macro level, this is the Sermon on the Mount. So um, this really, the Sermon on the Mount is uh, Jesus's inaugural speech uh, as he's stepping into his authority and his ministry um, and his leadership. And what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount, and specifically in this initial element of it, the Beatitudes, is he's laying out the culture of what life will be like for those who choose to walk in his kingdom, for those who choose to live according to his culture, living under his leadership, submitted to his authority. What life will look like, what, life will what, what our experience will be, and who it is for. And it's interesting, this would be a really uh, practical thing that you could do on your own time if you're uh, interested in studying this. Go back and uh, Google Donald Trump uh, inaugural speech or, or Barack Obama inaugural speech or George W. Bush, whatever president you, you want to, to listen to. Go back and just parallel their inaugural speech, their declaration of what life will look like and who will prosper and who will be valued and who will be considered worthy under their leadership in their reign in our society, and then compare it to Jesus's. I think in that moment, just doing that alone, you will uh, be challenged, but you will be encouraged because Jesus, unlike any other leader, unlike any other person in authority, unlike any other person who has been the focal point of the direction and the reality and the culture of a society, is the most loving, is the most gracious, is the most powerful. And we have to make a choice as people, even as those who are uh, in some way trying to follow Jesus within the culture of our context and in our society, have to decide who ultimately am I going to let be my leader? Who ultimately am I going to let lead me? Who ultimately is the authority in my life? Because we can be Americans and we can be under the system of our constitution and we can be under the, uh, the authority and the leadership of our president. Are those my keys? Who did that? 
But there is this other alternative, which is the authority of Jesus in the kingdom of God. And what we're learning here in Matthew 5, 1 through 11, is, is the core mission, spe- specifically the people that are at the forefront of that kingdom. <laughs> Doesn't bother me. I'll keep going. Not distracted. Now I'm a little distracted. <laughs> you know what? Everybody, just get up. Let's all go check. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> if you did, I think it's right there. It, the, what, like, <laughs> I, I think it's right there. If, uh, if you parked over there. Everybody close their eyes so we don't see who's walking. Let's put a little extra time on the clock. Get this thing going. Okay, focus in. Back to the scriptures. We have to make a choice. What, what path are we going to follow? What way are we going to live in? Whose authority are we going to submit to? And what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount is he's putting very clearly before us, this is what life in my kingdom looks like. This is the culture of it. This is the mission of it. This is what it would look like to be under my authority and my reign. And as we know, this is not a temporary authority and reign. He doesn't have four years in office and then re-election. He is the greatest authority. He is in control. And this kingdom can be experienced now, but it will one day be forever. And we get to stand and walk in it if we so choose to submit ourselves to his leadership. And what we look at this morning is the culture of that. So read with me Matthew chapter 5. Jesus' inaugural speech, Sermon on the Mount. Take note of this. This is the beginning of it. What, what presidents will often do in the beginning of, of their speech is give thanks and gratitude and recognition to those who have helped them get to that place, those that they're um, most concerned with in terms of whether it's their base politically or their constituents who help them get there. So just take note of that as we're reading the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount and we're looking at who Jesus is initially appealing to. Come on, praise the Lord. Let's get it out of us. Come on, okay. Moving on. Matthew chapter 5. God is here. God is. Matthew chapter 5. Seeing the crowds. Hearing the sounds, that's not in there. He went up on the mountain. When he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 
an interesting way to start an inaugural speech. This word blessed is the word makarios in the Greek. What makarios um, means is really happy or congratulations. It's actually better not translated blessed. Um, for whatever reason, that's the way that we've translated it. That doesn't make it wrong or that shouldn't question our ability to submit to the scriptures. But there just really isn't like a fair direct correlation between the Greek and the English in this, with this particular word. But the word blessed, um, especially when we think about that, we have so many cultural references for what it means to be blessed. That's why it's important for us to understand this. That word blessed means happy or congratulations. Even more than that, the spirit of it is this. Nathan and, and Michaela Rathman. How many of you know Nate and Michaela? They just had a baby boy last night, Judah. Last night or this morning? You know, they're not here. Don't know why you're clapping. Just kidding. But because there's a certain like amount of congratulations that we want to give to that moment. And when Nate and Michaela show up, or if you have their phone number, you'll text them and you'll say, congratulations on the birth of your new child. What we're saying is we're so excited for this new moment that's happened and all the promise that it holds. And what Jesus is saying is congratulations if you're poor. Congratulations if you're mourning. Congratulations if you're meek. And if you're anything like me, you hear that, you read that, especially when you begin to understand, when, at least for me, because blessed, I have so many different references. So when I really dug into what the word meant, and I understood that it was happier congratulations, and then I paired it with the things that Jesus is bringing happiness and congratulations to, there was this like disconnect inside of me, because when I think about being poor in spirit, or I think about mourning, or I think about meekness, or I think about being a peacemaker, my initial emotional reaction is not happiness or excitement. I literally thought to myself as I was studying this, like, Jesus, you're insensitive. <laughs> I'm just a human being. I have repented of that thought. But let's be honest. Especially, think about the people that Jesus is talking to. He's talking to first century Jews who are under the oppression of the Roman Empire, who have a history as, of being these people who are God's people, but have lived in and out of idolatry and suffered the consequences of that and slavery and war and all these things. And not only that, but now they've stepped into 400 years of silence from God. There are people who have heard of this Savior who is going to come and rescue them and redeem them and restore them. And Jesus comes on scene. And he doesn't open his speech with, we're going to make Israel great again. And I'm going to come and do all these things and rescue you. And we're going to take out the Roman Empire and all that. He just says, blessed are you. Happy and congratulations if you are marginalized and oppressed and pushed out to the, the fringes of society. Now, if you're a first century Jew, part of you is thinking, I'm not sure if I should be happy or bummed. Because bummed. <laughs> Out of the mouth of babes, you know what I mean? That's, that's honesty right there. Like, have you ever been in a moment where you, your reality, your context, your relationships are not desirable? And you're desperate for change. 
and you're waiting for someone to come and bring you good news of an immediate cure or solution to that so that your change or your circumstances, your relationships, whatever it might be, can change instantly. And that's what we're all hoping for. That's what we're all desiring. That's what we're all working to. And if we're not working toward it, there's still something inside of us that's desiring that. And Jesus steps up on this mountain, just culturally, when someone stepped on a mountain to speak, what, what they were non-verbally communicating is, I'm going on this mountain to tell you that I believe I'm God. So when they see him go up on this mountain, their ears, their hearts, everything is paying attention. Like this guy is going to speak in such a way where it has the authority of that of a God. The other good reference to understand and, and to understand the importance of this specific teaching, and, and I, it's not my place, and it's hard to say that any scriptures are more important than the other. That's not what I'm saying, but we should be really like aware of the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes because, again, this is Jesus laying out essential elements to what his kingdom will look like, what life looks like in following Jesus. The other person that stepped onto a mountain to deliver good news to Israel was Moses, right, on Mount Sinai. And what he was doing was he was giving them to law, the law to lead them into the promised land, to lead them out of slavery. What Jesus is saying is, I'm about to give you a teaching. I'm about to give you good news. I'm about to give you a way of life that will lead you out of your slavery. But the tension is, is that he's saying happy and congratulations to undesirable situations. Jesus, what are you trying to say? Let's look at three things. Three things the Beatitudes are not, if you're taking notes. Number one, the Beatitudes are not proverbial truths. Sorry, they're not proverbial virtues. Do you know what I mean by that? They're not like philosophical, characteristic type things that we should desire. When Jesus is poor in spirit, he's not talking about He's not, he's not primarily speaking to people who have lowly emotions, okay? Now, on a secondary level, if you have lowly emotions, God sees you, he wants to comfort you, he wants to heal you, he wants to give you courage. But when Jesus says poor in spirit, if you translate that word back to the original language, which is important because we have to get to the core of what he's saying, that word is patokos, which literally means hand to mouth. So when Jesus is poor in spirit, he's talking to people who are living hand to mouth, who are in the bottom of a socioeconomical level and caste, who are living poor, who have nothing at all, and who are living in this space in society where people look at you as dirty or ugly or deserving of whatever your state is because of the things that you've chosen, whatever it might be. We all have different views, but they're people who have very little worth and value in a society, especially in this cultural moment in Rome. And what Jesus is saying is if you're poor, not just lowly in emotions, but if you're poor, happy congratulations. A better way that I think about that when he says happier congratulations, because again, those two words have like such different cultural references and meanings to us. When I think about that, what I've allowed to kind of get inside of me is when Jesus is going through this list of people groups who are marginalized and disenfranchised and culturally viewed as unworthy or, or, or not as valuable. What he's saying is he's directly addressing them. He's calling them out to tell them, I see where you are and I can work with your situation. I 
I see you. I see you in your poverty. I see you in your abuse. I see you in your vulnerability. I see you in the purity of your desires, regardless of what your external circumstances work, look like, and regardless of what the other leaders around you or the other people are saying or not saying to you, whether they're looking at you or avoiding you, whether they're talking poorly about you, whether they're putting all of these improper uh, opinions and identities on you, I see you where you are, and you're, new, you're not too far away. You're not too ugly. You're not too unworthy for me. You are the core of my mission. You're the apple of my eye, so to speak, and I can work with your situation. Now, if you don't resonate with some of these literal truths, like when Jesus says meek, I've heard, and not just I've heard, but I've thought about meekness this way before, and I've had people try to teach me that this is what meekness means. And what I'm about to say to you is what meekness is, but it's not the primary thing I think that Jesus is speaking to in this moment. Some people have said, and, and I've thought before, meekness is a choice to take the power that I have, and to not leverage it to exercise my authority over people to domineer or intimidate or make myself feel better, but to take the power that I have and to lay it down to serve other people. And that is meekness. And we should do that. But that's not who Jesus is talking to. He is and he isn't. If that's you, do it. Be meek, be humble. But if we make these things about proverbial virtues shaped by the American way in the American context, which is extremely privileged, we take the power away from what Jesus is saying. If Jesus is talking to me, Connor White, a white middle-class American who's a pastor of a, a, a big church, all these different things. I have all these privileges. I have resources. I have security. If he's primarily talking to me as someone who is meek, who just takes their authority and lays it down to serve others, although that's good and we should do that, but that's the core of what he's trying to say. It's really not that powerful or hopeful at all. Like if Jesus is primarily concerned with the most privileged of society or those who are, who are really privileged and he doesn't see the disenfranchised, if he doesn't see the marginalized, then he's not like any other leader or ruler at all and we should put, not put our hope and our trust in him. But that's not who he is. He is the one who sees them. He's the one who is aware of them. And what he's saying through the Beatitudes as he puts it at the beginning of this inaugural speech type moment where he's laying out the overall culture of his society under his leadership. What he's saying is you are at the forefront of my mind and my mission. I see you. I'm concerned about you. I'm coming after you. I can work with your situation. That is the best news in the world. that Jesus sees the lowly of the low and he doesn't turn his head from them. But what, what he's doing right now and what he did back then, what he's doing for all eternity until we step into a restored new earth is revealing to us that this is the core of his mission and who he's most focused on. The Beatitudes are not proverbial virtues. The second thing the Beatitudes are not commandments. They're not commandments. 
It's important because if you're uh, not inherently or disposed to these realities, like I'm not poor, I'm not rich, but I'm not poor. If I view the Beatitudes as commandments and I think to myself, in order to be blessed, I need to go become poor, I have totally missed what Jesus is trying to say. If um, you, if meekness in and of itself is the goal in terms of being one who is just totally vulnerable and subject to unjust authority, if that is the main aim, if that's what's good, which it's not, that, that type of God would be totally like perverse and unloving for him to, for that to be the ultimate desire for his people. But if it was... It's not that it is. What Jesus is saying in light of that, in terms of meekness, for example, he's not saying go, go intentionally put yourself in an environment, in a situation, and subject yourself to injustice for the sake of subjecting yourself to injustice so that you can be marginalized. Now, if you are that way, because that's what society and life has done to you, that is what it is. And there's good news for you. Jesus sees you in that place. Or let's say you're a missionary and you go off into a foreign country that has a corrupt society and corrupt culture and violence is uh, an inherent part of that. And you go, you go. Your purpose is to bring the hope and the good news of Jesus to a people group who may not yet understand it. You go to help partner with your hands and your feet, with your resources to bring restoration and order to that culture to, within the context of that culture, reveal to the world around it what it means to follow Jesus and live within his kingdom. If that's what you go and the consequences of that is death, you know, that's a part of it. But you don't go as a missionary looking for death. If it happens, it happens. But Jesus is not commanding us to pursue as virtues and as ideals and as actions these undesirable realities. He's just saying, if and when that happens, and it does, I see you and I'm for you and I'm working and I'm trying to work through my people to give you hope and restoration in a different reality. This particular point number two, it not being commandments, is really for those of you who are not literally in these spaces. Because at times, when I, especially when I begin to realize what I feel, and if you disagree with my opinion on the Beatitudes, that's okay. I'm just doing my best to interpret the scriptures as fairly as possible. Um, when, I, when I had that reality, I, I literally thought to myself, well, does that mean I need to be poor? I'm of more use to the kingdom of God in this world around me when I leverage whatever resources I do have than just wasting them to, find, to get to like a socioeconomic space to feel better about myself and more pious because I misinterpreted what Jesus is trying to say in the Beatitudes. Does that make sense? Yeah. If, you are, if you are a person of power and influence, don't throw it away. Actually, humble yourself and use it to serve the people around you. If you are a person of great, like, just purity inside of you and you've committed to the process of holiness and you've made yourself obedient to righteousness, don't throw that away so that you can get into this place where you don't have that and you have to hunger and thirst for it. 
We should hunger and thirst for it no matter who we are. But when Jesus is saying those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, this is just my conjecture, but I think he's talking about people in light of the rest of what he's saying. People whose life don't look that way. People whose life has been shaped and identified by the corruptness of human beings and the perversity of man. Who are subject to that. Who feel like they can't get out of it who have been labeled as dirty and unworthy and valuable, whether they've chosen it or not, it doesn't really matter. Yet those people have something inside of them that hopes and yearns for a different reality, that hopes and thirsts and hungers for the purity and the righteousness of God. Jesus is speaking to that person. He's saying regardless of what your external reality looks like, and that's not to justify people's chosen sin, but that aside, regardless of what your external reality looks like, no matter how unrighteous or how unpious or how dirty you look, if there is hope for eternity, if there's desire for righteousness, if there's desire for purity inside of you, even though it seems like you've got to climb a mountain in order to get there, so to speak, I see you and I can work with your situation. But if you're not in that camp, do everything you can to go to those people to give them a hope and to sh- in the camp that Jesus is literally speaking to in these moments. We have hope that Jesus sees us and he's bringing us out. And if we're not, we don't waste and throw away what we have in order to, in kind of a vain or, or ignorant way, walk into these spaces. But we take what we do have and we use it humbly and we leverage it to go to people who are disenfranchised, to go to people that have been forgotten, to go to people who have been marginalized, to share with them what we have, to be a blessing to them, and to carry them out of it. The third thing, that the Beatitudes are not, and then we'll jump into what what it is. They are not timeless truths. They're not timeless truths. There are people who have been meek in this world who on this side of eternity have not inherited the earth. There are people, if you're here today or you've known someone or you've been in the space, maybe you're poor, literally poor. You're living hand to mouth or or close to it. And Jesus sees you and he wants to bless you. And you could in a monetary way, gain wealth and, and change your reality and your, but you might not. And what we have to do when we're reading these is we have to see them through an eternal lens. Not just a, a natural, temporal, this side of eternity in this broken, old earth type of lens. But we have to understand that as Jesus followers, we now see everything through the hope of heaven. This reality that one day, God will return and he will make a new heavens and a new earth. And those who have submitted to him, have submitted to his authority, who have given their lives to him, who have trusted them with their salvation, those who have done that will step into that new earth and it will be free and void of all the injustices and all the sin and all the selfishness and all the brokenness of this earth that has caused these people to be in these moments and spaces. And we have to decide, and my question to you is, in light of what Jesus is saying, are you okay with viewing these things through an eternal lens? Because as, as much as we like to talk about heaven sometimes as Jesus followers, 
the actual like manifested experience in our life is we are dissatisfied with our current reality and sometimes we, we forsake God because we had an unfair expectation that certain things would happen in this life that didn't because we didn't look through an eternal lens, we looked through a temporal lens. Now I'm not, if you're dissatisfied, and you're discontent, and you're crying out for your current reality and your circumstances to change, I'll do that with you. It's not wrong for you to do that. We should be people who, who desire the reality of heaven, who desire holiness, who desire purity, who desire freedom, who desire to be set free from all of the injustices that come with the selfishness of this world. But if they don't, we're at peace because we know one day that everything will change. We know one day that our reality will be different. So they're not timeless truths necessarily in regarding to this time. And God could change and he does. Like I look at the people in this space like Clark Menzies was on his deathbed like three years ago, four years ago, five years ago, four. Like we literally, you know, we're not sure. And here he is. And there are other stories in this room. I look at people and, and I know some of your stories. And I know how your life has been transformed. And I think that, again, we should have like a greater measure of faith for transformation and healing and restoration in our lives. Don't ever let that die out. But can you be okay if it doesn't happen the way that you want it to? On the timeline that you want it to? Knowing that one day everything will change. Everything. Everything. Okay, what the Beatitudes are, and then we'll close. If you stand with me, we'll wrap it up with this. This is what the Beatitudes are. The Beatitudes are simply good news. N.T. Wright, who's a great theologian, if you're learning to learn more about theology and the scriptures, read anything written by N.T. Wright. But he says this, the, Sir, the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount are not good actions. They're not moral uh, sorry, they're not good advice. They're not these moral teachings necessarily, although it speaks to our morality. But again, it's a presentation of a different narrative that we live within. It's good news that there is a, this story that's happening and it has characters. Each and every one of us is a character in that story, but there's a hero in that story and his name is Jesus. And that hero has come and is coming to make everything right again. So as we read the Beatitudes and we allow it to shape our life, it should change the way that we view the world. It should change our perspective. We should understand, be reminded that there's a different narrative that God has put forth in the earth. One that is supreme over any other narrative. One is supreme that is over any other reality. It's a different way of living. It's a different way of seeing the world. And it's the best news possible that the king in that society, the king in that story, the hero of it, doesn't see those who he just likes the most and doesn't see those who are just of the most used to him and who have the most resources and who seem to be the most valuable within the culture of that society. But he sees those 
that nobody else sees. And not only does he see them, and this is what we have to grasp. I want you to know this. I present this whole teaching to you from an incredible place of humility. I am so far from like mastering this. It has been um, something that I, I read every day and I am wrestling over. Because more and more I'm realizing that the mission of God is to see the marginalized and to go after them. Until his kingdom is fully restored in the new earth, that's what we're doing here and now. And I don't know how great I am at that at times. But nonetheless, as we look at the Beatitudes in the Sermon out, we're reminded that there's a different story going on here. And it's the best news in the world. It's the best story in the world. And if it's not to you, then may God work with you and challenge you. This is why I follow Jesus, the Beatitudes. More and more, that's my realization. Because I, I, I assess the other realities and cultures and stories that are at play in society and in our world and, and have been throughout history. And none of them compare to this one. That the most powerful human being who is also God in the world would step into creation to save us from ourselves, but would say in his inaugural speech, in his presentation as to what his kingdom would look like, he would put the marginalized at the forefront of it. It's not popular, it's not sexy, there's nothing in that for him, other than to restore all of humanity. I wanna close with this and then we're gonna pray. Um, if you think about the story of the prodigal son, you know, a, a micro-narrative here at play within that story, we see three main characters. We see the prodigal son, who is the one who took his father's inheritance and went and wasted it. He's the sinner. He's the one who deserves the consequences because of what he's done. And we see the father. We see the older brother. The older brother is the obedient one. He's the firstborn. He's the type A. He's uh, the conservative. He's uh, the prude, he's all these, and he just, he remained in obedience to his God, to his father. And what we see in that story, we don't see the father looking at the older brother who was obedient. The story doesn't say that he was day in and day out watching him do the right tasks and praising him for his obedience and, and his eyes were on the older brother who was righteous and and. Uh, a good Christian, all these different things that's kind of my modern interpretation of it. It says that the father was at the edge of the property watching and waiting for the prodigal son to return. I think that's what Jesus is trying to communicate to us about the nature of God right now in this moment, in this current time in history until everything is restored and renewed. The heart of the Father is primarily watching those who have wandered off or have been separated from him, from him for whatever reason. And he's waiting for them to return. He's not so much worried about those who, and the older brother got was doing the right thing. So if you're in that camp, I'm not saying don't, don't do those things. Like don't, I'm not saying run off intentionally either. You know what I mean? 
But I'm just saying, we have to get, Jesus is trying to change our perspective now in this moment, especially if you're a follower of Jesus. This is not like individualized Christianity where we make sure we're good moral beings, although we should walk in holiness and righteousness. We're people who should pursue the presence of God, allow that to transform us, understand God's word and allow that to transform us. And as we do that, we realize that God came to save and heal that was broken and lost. So we live in such a way where our perspective, our lens, everything we're looking for, we're looking for those who are desperate for good news that there is a God, there is a leader, there is a kingdom that they are welcoming, that they're valuable and that they deserve. Not because we're worthy, but because God has made a way for that to happen. Last thought. The Hebrew word for blessing uh, is best translated. It's more of a word picture than it is a direct verbal translation. But if you look up that word, it will literally say uh, to be blessed is to be one who kneels. To be one who gets on their knees. And what I've learned about life is life will either bring you to your knees or we'll choose to go to them ourselves. And we see this in the prodigal son and the older brother. The way that that story almost ends, it doesn't totally end here, but the prodigal son returns because he's hopeful that there could be an alternative reality. It says that he comes to his senses. Let me say this, don't ever give up on anybody no matter where they're at. We're just waiting for them to come to their senses. Because each and every one of us has eternity in our hearts. And no matter what we say or what we think or what we do, no matter how far we try to run from God, no matter how hard-hearted we get, no matter how atheistic we get, no matter what happens, eternity is in our heart and we just need to come to our senses. And when we do, we, we do our darndest to return home. But what the story says and what's true of humanity is at some point we fall short even of our ability to fully return. But the story is good because the son comes to his knees. He can't even get home. And the father runs to him and blesses him. When life brings you to your knees, God runs to us and he blesses us. You know what the, the tension is in the rest of that story? The father returns home. The older, uh, righteous, I would probably say self-righteous brother, who was obedient, who lived in his father's ways, who lived on the property, who did all the right things, he was so angry that the father ran to the son and was throwing this big party for him. Now, if you're in that camp, if you're not in the camp of the people that Jesus is directly speaking to in the Beatitudes, this is... I'm speaking to you right here in this moment. Come to your knees. Even in your privilege, even in your resources, even in your societal significance, come to your knees. The Father says to him, chill out. This is my translation. Chill out. What are you so worried about? Everything I have is yours. I wonder if sometimes we miss out on the party, the real like fruition of God's presence in this earth for us because we're just proud and we're unwilling to come to our knees. Especially when we see people who we think are unworthy of that come to their knees and experience it. Our God is different. 
He doesn't play fair. He doesn't do things. He's just, but he doesn't do things justly. Our, our standard of justice has to change. We actually should probably just kind of, I got everything I say is nuanced. I was about to say throw it out. Don't do that. But just throw out this like pride inside of you that wants to say, I get to be God and I get to say what's right and wrong and how people should be treated for it. Because the prodigal son should not have gotten the fattened calf in a robe and a ring. But he did. And I want to be the older brother because I'm not the prodigal son. Not right now. Not that I will be. I don't want to be. But I want to be humble. I want to be the older brother who's not so concerned with myself and and just my own morality and my own significance and my own obedience. So I'm not willing to go to the front line with my father at the edge of the property to wait for people to come to their senses. I want to be the, the one who runs with those who are running to those who need to be run to, throwing myself on top of them, metaphorically speaking. <laughs> and communicating that even when life has brought you to your knees, for whatever reason it has, God sees you and you're blessed. 